This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications for the ACLU of PA. The murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis last month has brought the United States to a moment of reckoning on policing, race, and our continued refusal to acknowledge and deal with how white supremacy has defined the history of this country. To some degree, we've been here before. Black-led protests against police brutality have come in waves over decades. But in the midst of a pandemic that has disproportionately harmed and killed black people, a rising and energized young multiracial dynamic in the country, and a leader in Washington who throws fuel on fires instead of leading with calm and grace, is it possible that this time is different? I asked that question of Paige Fernandez, policing policy advisor for National ACLU. Paige and I discussed why reform didn't work, what it means to divest in police and reinvest in people, and how the history of policing defines our present. This conversation was recorded on June 17th. So Paige, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. I know you've had uh, an incredibly busy and exhausting time the last few weeks, um, but I'm glad we could at least make some time to talk and, and see where, where things stand for National ACLU and where we're going with this police reform work. Yeah, I'm happy to be here and talking about this. It's really important. And I know that you uh, work in our national office, of course, in New York, but I also understand that uh, we are your hometown affiliate as well. So that's kind of fun and exciting. <laughs> 215 forever, the greatest city in the world. <laughs> yep. All right. So um, I, I want to talk about where we are now with policing, but I, before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about where we've been. When I started the ACLU, I started at the end of 2004, and at that time we had uh, a lawsuit against the city of York on racial profiling. And because of that lawsuit, um, the chiefs in York County and community advocates in York County started this project. They were working together trying to implement reforms. We had another lawsuit a few years later uh, against the Pittsburgh Bureau of Police on racial discrimination. They made a bunch of changes. Um, we've had an ongoing lawsuit against the city of Philadelphia over stop and frisk body cameras, you know, all of these things that have been out there. Training on mental health has been implemented in law in Pennsylvania. And yet, here we are. So my question for you is, why didn't reform work? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a question a lot of us are asking ourselves. You know, these reforms that you're talking about are sometimes referred to as procedural justice reforms. So reforms that try to use like our laws and policies to prevent police abuses, to increase oversight, to increase transparency, improve accountability. But unfortunately, what we found with a lot of the reforms that we as the ACLU, I know at least at National, have been pushing they fail to reduce the role that police play in communities of color, specifically the role they play in Black communities. And so while we might be increasing transparency, improving accountability mechanisms, we're not getting to the core of the issue. And what we're seeing is that, you know, to end the violence perpetrated by police in communities of color, we have to divest from police in order to shrink their scope, limit their power, and limit their responsibilities in the role that they play in society. 
Well, and to that point, ultimately, if you, it seems like it's a cultural issue within policing, that if, and if that culture doesn't change, you have to then do what you're doing, which is shrink the size of the departments. Absolutely. So I want to go back a little even further than that. I mean, the history of policing is one that was started to maintain the social order of white supremacy. I heard your interview on Nationals podcast at Liberty, and you were talking about one of the first departments, which was in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, Can you say a little more about that history? I think it's important for people to understand where policing has been and how that informs what we're seeing today. Absolutely. Um, And I'm so glad you mentioned this, especially right after mentoring culture around policing, because the history of police in this country, the reason we can't change the culture in policing is because of where policing comes from. And so we know that some of the first organized police forces in this country developed as slave patrols. And the first one we're aware of is from Charleston, South Carolina, where there was a group of free white men who gathered to exert social control over slaves and any slaves who tried to escape to freedom. And that was their role. Their literal role was to exert social control and oppress Black people. And so when we talk about policing, we talk about where we're moving as a movement, as an organization, it's really important for us to reckon with the history of policing. We have to talk about um, the racist history of policing and the reason that policing was developed in this country in the first place, which was solely to oppress and control Black people. And, you know, it it developed through, um, you know, into segregation during Jim Crow, police continued to be used as a force to oppress Black communities and to ensure that they could not gain any control um, and to just exert a lot of power over them and to harm them and to be violent against them. And so we really have to, we have to address that. We have to talk about that to understand the underlying problem with policing, which is the role they play and the amount of power they have, especially in Black communities to this day. I think there's a lot of concern that we feel like we've been here before. You look over the last 60 years or so, there has been a a regular uh, wave, I guess, of protests against police brutality, um, and yet we are where we are. Um, So with that in mind, you know, the ACLU is pivoting off of where we were before. You know, we talked about transparency and accountability were our thing. And now we're moving into this idea that you're presenting, which is to reduce the role and the scope of policing in people's everyday lives. So can you say a little more about what that looks like? Absolutely. And, you know, I want to address also why we've gotten to this point. And I think it's important for us as like a large institution to acknowledge that, you know, the ideas that we're excited about and that we are looking forward to working on with Black-led organizations, these are ideas that Black organizers, Black activists, Black advocates have been um, working on, researching, writing about, talking about, and pushing for years, for decades, right? Angela Davis has been talking about um, divestment and defunding for decades. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that. And I think as the ACLU, as we've listened as we've learned, it's become clearer that the only way to reduce the power of police and to end the violence perpetrated by police is to divest from police and reinvest those savings in community-based services. And so where the ECLU 
is, or at least what we're talking about right now specifically, is divestment which and reinvestment, which is equally as important as divestment. And what these terms for us mean is it's a shift of power, funding, resources, and responsibility away from the punitive and harmful institution of policing and into life-affirming, community-based, and community-led supportive services, specifically in communities of color, specifically in Black communities, specifically in low-income communities. These are communities that have suffered from decades of underinvestment in everything except punitive programs like policing, like jails, and like prisons. And so we've come to this point where we realize it's imperative that we dramatically reduce the role of police in the United States and by doing so, reallocate those savings to alternatives to police and to communities that have historically been targeted by police. What would the police not do if the ACLU's vision, if the vision of these organizations that you've, you've mentioned, these Black-led organizations that, you know, they've been working on this for a long time, like, where's, where's the shift? Like, what would police stop doing and, like, human-oriented programs, what would they pick up if, to replace that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing to note is what are police doing now, right? We need to think about what police are doing now. And according to the FBI, out of the 10.3 million arrests made per year by police, only 5% of those are for the most serious crimes, things like rape, aggravated assault, and murder. I think people believe that police spend most of their time working on these kind of serious offenses. But in reality, 95% of the arrests made every year are a mixture of offenses that are unnecessarily criminalized. And, you know, sometimes the enforcement of these offenses results in police murdering community members. You know, for example, Eric Garner was selling cigarettes without a tax stamp, and he was murdered because of that. And there was actually, I'm so excited to be on today because I saw this interesting data visualization of Philadelphia and the amount of time the Philadelphia Police Department spends enforcing a range of different offenses. And it illustrated, you know, just how little police time is actually spent on the most serious offenses and how much time is spent on checking out people's properties, responding to traffic issues, responding to vehicle issues, or responding to medical and mental health issues. So when we're talking about, you know, what we want to pass over to community-based services and community-based resources, there's just such a broad range. I mean, truly, the possibilities are endless. I think specifically when it comes to behavioral health crises, a large portion of people who are murdered by the police are in a mental health crisis. They do not need an armed response, right? And police, this is actually something that I believe we can agree with many police about. I think there are a lot of police, I've seen police chiefs come out and say, we are not trained nor are we equipped to deal with people who are in mental health crises. So let's offer an alternative response. Let's offer them mobile crisis services, which can be composed of psychiatrists and nurses and psychologists and social workers who are trained in de-escalation, who know how to deal with people in crisis and can offer them a safe nurturing environment to get better. This isn't a radical idea. There is a program in Eugene, Oregon called CAHOOTS, where there are teams of medics and crisis workers that go out and respond to emergencies involving behavioral health crises. And in 2019, that team handled nearly one in five of Eugene's Oregon's 911 calls that used to go to police, right? right? And so really reducing that contact 
but also there's just such a wide range of things that we can invest in. And the other point I want to make is just that crime is not random. You know, most of the time crime happens when someone can't meet their basic needs through any other means. It's so important for us to be talking about reinvesting in community-based services so we can allow people to meet their basic needs and provide them with the opportunities to thrive, which would inherently cut down on the types of crimes that police spend their time um, enforcing. I'm glad you mentioned the mental health. I was actually thinking about several cases over the last few years here in central PA. Uh, One was in Center County in State College, where a young man was apparently in some kind of mental health crisis. At the least, he had sent some texts to his father that worried his father. Um, He was alone at the time. His name is Osaze Osagi. His father was concerned that he was off of his medication. The father was communicating with the police. Um, They got a 302 warrant, um, which is a mental health warrant. But the police approached his apartment door just themselves. Um, They had been communicating with his father. They stopped communicating with the father. They had no mental health professional on site. Three officers approached this young man's door. He was alone at the time. He was alone in his apartment. And within seconds of knocking on his door, they shot and killed him. There were a couple other cases in Harrisburg where people were in mental health crisis. They did have other people within the vicinity of them at the time. But um, again, you know, no mental health intervention, just police violence. And the other case I was thinking of was in Dolphin County. It didn't involve mental health, but it was about traffic. A police officer in a small town saw a vehicle with an expired registration. And she turned around and followed the car. The car, the driver fled for about half a mile, parked his car and ran, and she shot him in the back. These are the kind of things I think that you're talking about. The, The car registration one just like blows my mind. PennDOT knows that someone's <laughs> registration is expired. Like you don't, all they, they could mail someone a fine in the mail. They don't, we don't need police engaging in that way. Yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned that too, because I think there's, people are concerned about, okay, if we're reducing the role of police, who will keep us safe, but who, what safety are we talking about? Safety for whom, right? Because there are so many videos of Black men and women who are confronted by the police and rightfully scared, right? And so they get vilified by media for running away or try, not responding to the officer. But of course, that would be the instinct when you are constantly inundated with videos and stories of Black people being killed for minor offenses, for not really doing anything at all, for doing things that shouldn't be criminalized in the first place. And so I really, you know, hope that people think more about safety and what that looks like, because I I don't believe that police provide the safety that people think they do, especially for Black people in Black communities. That case in Center County, uh, the information that came out afterwards, we learned that the Center County officials were serving over 300 mental health warrants per year. So once a day, police officers are responding when that's really better handled by mental health professionals. Um, I wanted to ask you about this moment in terms of what can be achieved. You know, we're seeing cities that are talking about either flat funding or cutting their police budgets. Some school districts, Minneapolis, Denver, Portland, Oregon, they're all talking about ending their policing programs. Um, that's a lot of progress in three weeks. That's, that's amazing. 
to some degree, I feel like we've been here before, particularly since 2014, since the events of, that led to the murders of Michael Brown and, and Eric Garner. 2016 was another moment where it seemed like there was a lot of attention around policing and police abuse. Do you feel like maybe this time's different? I do. I I do. I feel it in, like, in genuinely in my gut, I feel like this moment is different. I mean, Mariam Kaba being published in the New York Times, right? Like, <laughs> this brilliant Black abolitionist who's been talking about the importance of defunding for decades and decades being lifted up on this large platform. You know, I, I think this is a different moment. I think our rallying cries are different and what we're demanding is different. And the responses we're receiving are different in a few locations. Granted, there are government officials who are adopting kind of like procedural justice reforms that just quite frankly do not go far enough. But we are seeing people really step up, city council members across this country step up and say, no, I will not approve of the mayor's budget that puts more money into the police department. We need to talk about diverting the funds that go to police and putting that into other community-based services and community-led services that will actually benefit public safety and health. So I really do think we have this moment. And I also think that people are realizing their power, especially when it comes to cutting police budgets. So much of this happens on the municipal level, right? And so we have so much power over our local officials. And I feel like people are coming to realize that, right? This isn't, we're not begging. I mean, we should be asking our senators and Congress people to be doing more, but talking to our local officials, we have a lot of sway over them. And I think people are really starting to realize that. And that actually raises something else I wanted to ask you about, which is this, I I read um, a piece where someone was arguing that we do need to shrink the size of the police. We need to divest and reinvest, but that's going to take time. And there are reforms that could be done immediately. And so this person was arguing that it's a both and, not necessarily an either or. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think that the energy has to go all in to divest and reinvest? I think that this is a moment for us to be putting as much energy as possible behind divest and reinvest. We have this moment. I think it's important that we seize this moment and we do not lose this moment. That is not to say that there aren't other reforms, harm reduction reforms that can be put in place, but we have this moment, right? And there are things that can be done. Executive orders can be handed down by mayors saying, you know what, we're going to cut the budget by this much in the police department. We saw it happen in Los Angeles. It can happen. And so I think we need to just continue applying that pressure. But yeah, you know, I, I think it is this is a moment. This is a new moment. This is an invigorating moment. And I think it's really important that while we have this moment in particular, that we seize it and we put a lot of energy behind it. So before you got to the ACLU, you were involved in community organizing. And I know over the last two years at the ACLU, you've been going from city to city and meeting with advocates and and activists if someone listening to this is interested, they want to get involved in their local community, what do you recommend? Where do you start? What you, what should you know? Yeah, I mean, so Patrice Cullors actually issued kind of this like manifesto today on her Instagram, which I thought was such a great resource for people who are wondering how to get involved in this. And one of her first recommendations is saying, join an organization. 
right? Join an organization um, in your city. And, you know, in Philly, we have a range of organizations for people to get involved in. There are so many of them. I mean, getting involved in helping with the Philly Bail Fund is something that I have been super interested in for a while. But really, I, I think that you know, there are already existing organizations doing the work. So people joining them could be really helpful. I, I know there is the Black Alliance for Peace, um, Black Lives Matter Phillies, obviously amazing. Abolitionist Law Center Phillies doing really important defunding work. Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. There are so many local organizations that are doing such vital work already. So if you have the energy and you want to get involved, I'd say look them up. Find an organization that aligns with your views and your principles and volunteer. So many of these organizations we're talking about don't have full-time staff like the ACLU does, right? They're primarily volunteer-led. They could use the support and they need the support right now. Like this is a huge issue. Everyone is talking about it. So joining those groups and then also thinking about, again, I, I just want to bring it back to the power we have right now since so much of what we're talking about can be accomplished on the local level. I want people to just realize the power that they hold. Call your city council members, call your mayor, keep on protesting, make your voice heard because we're seeing changes, right? We're seeing big changes that three weeks ago, we didn't even think were possible. And I'm so excited about how much further we can go I just think it's a matter of people realizing the amount of power they have in this moment and really using that power to pressure our local officials and to also organize, volunteer and organize. All of these wins we're seeing is because of organizers. I cannot emphasize the importance enough of organizing and getting involved in local organizations that do that work. Yeah, I could never do every group in the Commonwealth justice because there are so many, um, but, you know, cities from Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, Lancaster, in the Lehigh Valley, I mean, there are groups all out throughout the state who are pretty active, and I would definitely encourage folks to find them in your area and, and connect. Well, Paige, thanks so much. This has been really insightful. Um, everybody here at the ACLU of PA really appreciates your work, and um, we will be looking to you for guidance and leadership, and we hope to help out however we can. And thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Paige Fernandez, Policing Policy Advisor for the ACLU. We have included links to numerous pieces in the show notes, including some of Paige's writing on this issue and other resources from the ACLU. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube with the handle at ACLUPA. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on your podcast app of choice. That helps others find the show. That is a wrap on episode 44. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.